We are resuming our series on Millennialism 101, and we are working our way through the Olivet Discourse. And since this is part two, I'm going to do a very, very brief review and then pick up where I left off last time, and we're going to plow ahead uh, starting where we left off last time. Just a couple things to consider. Uh, as we go through the balance of Matthew chapter 24, remember Jesus and the disciples are on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking across the Kidron Valley down on the Temple Mount. So it's the perfect place for this kind of a lecture. It's a, it's a great visual aid. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you can kind of envision the scene I'm talking about. Uh, in this discourse, uh, I'm arguing that Jesus not only answers the disciples' questions, the three questions that are put to him, but Jesus doesn't accept the premise of the questions. He, he corrects the questions, and that's kind of a characteristic of the Reformed millennial view, that um, the assumption is when the disciples ask Jesus, what is the sign of your coming? What is the end of the age? And tell us when will all these things come to pass? In the disciples' minds, the destruction of the city and the temple is the end of the age. And if you were a Jew in, in their circumstances, that would be the natural uh, thing to assume. But Jesus doesn't accept the premise of the question. He corrects them because their question is flawed. The destruction of Jerusalem isn't the end of the age. So he corrects that assumption. We'll, we'll uh, talk about that momentarily. Uh, the other thing that characterizes the Olivet Discourse, we spent a lot of time on this last time, and it'll come up again as we go through the uh, passage in more detail. The Olivet Discourse is characterized by a tension between signs that seem to indicate a whole bunch of things have to happen before Jesus can come back, along with Jesus speaking that this can occur virtually at any time. So there's a tension between signs and suddenness, and I spent a lot of time on this. Uh, we had a whole lecture devoted to uh, the signs of the end, and I covered that at that point. Now, as for the discourse itself, let's pick up where we left off uh, last time um, with this question in, in verse 3. So let me read verse 3 of Matthew 24 briefly. The disciples up on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, they've heard him say, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And they were saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? And he's referring to his own body. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? That is the destruction of the city and the temple. What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the end of the age? So uh, those are the questions the disciples have for Jesus. And that series of questions leads into the three blocks that we'll see in the Olivet Discourse, one are the signs of the end. Uh, in verses 4 to 14, Jesus gives the disciples a number of signs that foretell of the end. Uh, these signs not only relate to the disciples in their own lifetime, but those signs characterize, in many ways, the entire interadvental age. It is the entire time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Then there's a prophecy of great distress in verses 15 to 28, where Jesus now speaks in very explicit terms, prophetically, of what is going to happen to Jerusalem and the temple. And then, as we mentioned last time, uh, Jesus then speaks of the second coming. And he does this using prophetic perspective where he telegraphs an imminent event and a distant event, and he speaks of them in the same discourse, and yet when you look at it from a different perspective, you realize that there are two events here and not just one. So we'll take a look at that in some detail when we get there. Okay, so I'm picking up where I left off last time, and 
basically, in order to answer the question put to Jesus in verse 3, Jesus sets forth a series of signs of the end, and these are signs he characterizes as birth pains. And I think it's very important to keep that um, image in mind because if you've ever been in the delivery room, um, you end up with uh, this kind of cataclysmic sense in which there are all kinds of increasing pains. You think, this is going to be it, this is going to be it, this is going to be it, and then the pains abate for a moment, and then the process starts all over again. And by the time you've done this for a while, you get to the point where you can't tell the lulls from the pains anymore. It just it gets completely away from you. And I think the birth pain imagery here is really important in relation to the signs. The signs are going to be ongoing. There are going to be times where the signs are present. There are going to be times when the signs aren't present. And at the end, uh, if this follows the general outline of the book of Revelation, where the signs are present throughout the course of history and intensify at the end, well, then the birth pain imagery makes, makes perfect sense. So, Jesus describes these signs as but the beginning. And he points to the fact that not only do these signs really predict God's judgment upon apostate Israel, because in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus had just uh, wept over the side of the city. I long to gather you to me as a hen gathers his chicks, but you would not see your houses left to you desolate, the seven woes and all of that. Jesus has already done that, and now he's saying these signs point to God's judgment on Israel, but they're signs that really do characterize the entire period of time between the pronunciation of the woes and Israel's being cut off and the end of the age. And so we have this kind of a thing going on where these signs are present throughout. And the error that is so often made here is to try and identify uh, contemporary world events as proof that the Lord is coming soon. Look, there have been great earthquakes. The frequency of earthquakes is in, in, intensifying and so on. Well, that's exactly what Jesus says. In the course of history, things intensify and then they improve and they intensify and then the conditions improve. That, that's um, exactly what Jesus describes here. Now, these signs really point to the reality of future judgment, but not its time. The signs don't predict when Christ is coming. The signs tell us that Christ is coming. So I think we have to see the signs here not as a, as a springboard to speculate about what they mean, but through the eyes of faith when we see the signs present and the tumult going on in the earth, we think those things guarantee Christ's coming because Jesus said this would be the case and they are. So through the eyes of faith, this is not a sign that the world's out of control, but this is exactly what Jesus told us to expect. And these things, in fact, are the harbinger, the herald of the end. So the signs aren't given so that well-intentioned Bible prophecy experts can correlate current events to the coming of Christ. And they're not limited to that 40-year period between AD 30 and AD 70. But they are given to comfort the disciples. And they are given to inform the church which is about to be born that even in the midst of difficult and perplexing events, all of this that's about to begin, God's people know that God is in control, that the signs of the end are not given to us to speculate. They're not indicators that everything's running amok and out of control, but they're signs that guarantee the certainty of Christ's second coming. In other words, the signs tell us that not all is right in the world 
and that Christ is going to come back and make all things right in the world. So I think that's the way we need to, to view this. Now, beginning in verse 4, Jesus answers the last question put to him by the disciples first. And so Jesus says, look, watch out that no one deceives you, for many are going to come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now, that's obviously a sign of the entire inter-advental period. Um, it's interesting that Jesus begins with a warning about not being led astray by those who engage in prophetic uh, speculation, especially speculation centering on deceivers who come and they claim to be the Christ as they claim to be the Messiah. Uh, Jesus is the only Christ. He is the only true Son of God. And according to John's first epistle, remember, um, any Christ is anybody who denies that Jesus is God in the flesh. And when John wrote that epistle, probably uh, before the end of the first century, he, a huge debate among the scholars as to when John, John's gospel and John's epistle in the book of Revelation are written, uh, John is warning Christians in Asia Minor that many antichrists had already come. And that's how you know, John says, beloved children, it's the end of the age, we're in the last days, because antichrists, many of them, have already come. And that, of course, fits exactly with what Jesus says here. An antichrist is anybody who comes to God's people and denies that Jesus is the Christ, or someone who explicitly denies uh, that Jesus is the Christ, because they're claiming they might be the Christ as well. So... This tells us that the apostolic church faced the Antichrist in the first century. These zealots had, had come and gone. They had made all kinds of messianic claims. There, there are a couple of places in the New Testament, uh, in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 21, where these uh, messianic pretenders are uh, alluded to in the New Testament. Uh, the early church was plagued with these proto-Gnostic sects, S-E-C-T-S, proto-Gnostic sects, that denied that Jesus was God in the flesh. These things were around. Um, John writes Christians to warn of them. So basically what Jesus is telling us, there are going to be false teachers and false messiahs from the time of his coming until the time of his second coming. So Antichrist, as I've argued, is not just an end times phenomenon. Antichrist is something every Christian, every age is going to have to face. Now the question of whether or not these... <clears throat> The presence of Antichrist throughout this period guarantees a future Antichrist is another question for another lecture. I happen to think that it does. And you can see my book, uh, Man of Sin, uh, for the arguments there. Now, Jesus goes on to speak here of a great uh, deal of national, uh, international and political upheaval as being a sign of the end as well. He says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation is going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So Jesus is not only saying there are going to be false Christ present, he's saying there's going to be a period of war, nation will rise against nation, and, and so on. So again, you know, the tumult of the nations has always been a springboard for people to speculate about the end of the world. Um, I keep mentioning this book, but it is my favorite, um, being the Christian books are that I was in my youth. I remember John Walvoord's uh, dispensational classic, Arabs, Oil in the Middle East. Zonderman published that, and it sold really well. 
And then just about the time we were closing our bookstore down in the early 90s before uh, Desert Storm, lo and behold, that book comes out again with a new title. This time Saddam Hussein's on the cover. Um, it's got updated you know, weaponry. It's the same book, but you know, new cover, new title. And then it's come out again before uh, with the rise of Ahmadinejad in Iran. And so these things just keep getting recycled. Um, and that's exactly the kind of thing Jesus you know, is telling us is going to happen. Look, these nations are going to rise. There are going to be wars. There are going to be rumors of wars. This is a characteristic of the end. So he's not predicting a specific war. He's not predicting a specific despot who will come and take power. He's just telling us that this is going to go on like a birth pain until the second coming. There are going to be wars and rumors of wars. All this political intrigue is part of life in a fallen world. Now, people who aren't Christians see this tumult as proof that God doesn't care about the world or that he's not all-powerful because God supposedly is doing nothing about it. But Jesus tells us that this constant warfare is going to characterize this entire period of time, and it is a sign of his return. So when we see the nations waging war against one another, as Christians we say, that's a sign to us that God is going to come and intervene finally in world history and put an end to this. Maybe not now, but one day he certainly will. We see these wars and rumors of wars. We believe that to be the case. These are signs that Jesus is going to come back one day in judgment. Now, there's not only political upheaval. Uh, the ground's going to get a bit shaky and dry. Now, there are going to be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all these, Jesus says, are birth pains. Um, so, we see the prophecy pundits uh, reminding us that every time there's a swarm of earthquakes, ah, the Bible predicted this is the end. Well, the Bible told us there would be earthquakes all along. And if you know anything about geological history, you know that an earthquake swarm now is, is you know, very small on the grand scale of things, that plate tectonics and other things, these things happen over long periods of time. It's like climate, they're cyclical, things occur in one place, it'll be very calm in another place. Jesus told us that this would be the set of circumstances, and so creation travails because of the fall, but that too is a, is a sign that the Lord is going to come back and return. Now, in verse 9, Jesus changes subjects a bit from political and natural upheaval to persecution. He's warning the disciples, first of all, about persecution they're going to face in their own lifetimes. So, we discussed the nature of signs to the disciples and signs that characterize the inner advent period in an earlier lecture. I won't go through that again, uh, the justification for that. But Jesus is warning the twelve as they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives they are going to face very, very difficult days after Jesus ascends into heaven. And he says to them, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At the time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So, the disciples are going to face death. We know, based on uh, church tradition, and by the way, tradition is not the same thing as myth. A church tradition, oral tradition passed down, basically says that 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred or put to death. Apparently only John lived out his life in, in old age on Ephesus to be given the vision uh, we call the book of Revelation. But Jesus is warning the disciples, look, uh, you're going to be betrayed, you're going to be hated, and 
that's exactly what happened. So the birth pains began, and almost immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection, his own disciples are going to face horrific persecution from not only the Jews and the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but then from the uh, pagan Gentiles at the ends of the earth. There's you know, legend that Thomas, for example, made as far as India, and that church legend, church tradition says that he was, you know, uh, his skin was peeled off of him and he was cooked alive over a fire. I mean, you, you look at the tradition of the, the Twelve, and um, after they left the Jerusalem area, um, horrific persecution. So um, they did indeed take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and they suffered persecution for the sake of, of Christ. But their testimony is evidence against uh, unbelief that they um, will be vindicated not only on the last day, but by the fact that the gospel spreads in spite of the hatred and opposition that they face. Um, we find a parallel to this in the book of Acts, where you know, Paul describes persecution uh, as the gospel goes um, into Asia Minor, again, before Jew and Gentile there. Then we've got a long history if you read Eusebius' uh, ecclesiastical history or church history, uh, Paul Meyer has a very good English uh, translation of that. I encourage you to go back and read it. There's some parts of the Roman Empire where Christians live in peace and are free to pretty much do what they wish. There are other parts of the empire where they're facing constant persecution and it changes depending upon the political situation. Um, we know that during the Council of Sorrows and in, uh, during the Reformation in Holland, after the uh, papacy decided to put an end to the Reformation in France and the Low Countries and, and the Netherlands, uh, an army under the Duke of Alba, including Spanish and Italian and French soldiers, basically drove the Protestants north into what's now Holland and the Council of Sorrows. As many as uh, 20,000 were put to death. Schoff records that as, as 100,000, but most historians don't believe it was that high. But lots of people arrested and put to death, including Guido de Bray. Guy de Bray, the author of the Belgian Confession, was martyred in that. So we see martyrdom going on now in places in, uh, for example, uh, East Timor and others where Muslims have, have um, attacked churches. We see this in Nigeria and other places. You know, Darfur, this is just a constant uh, situation that goes on, and Jesus predicted it, that uh, every day a number of Christians die someplace, for their profession of faith in Christ. But all of that persecution, upheaval, is going to be accompanied, Jesus says, by kind of a, a moral coarsening of the heart as well. In verse 12, Jesus warns the disciples, because of the increase of human sinfulness, love is going to grow cold. And so, you know, as Matthew's already stated uh, earlier back in the Gospel, the love of God and neighbor fulfills the law. Those Christians who trust in Christ then... Uh, or demonstrate their trust in Christ by the love of neighbor. And yet that's the very thing that's lacking as evil increases. And so this calamity of the nations, the wars and rumors of wars, the hatred and persecution of God's people, the false Christ, all of that increases. And Jesus says this is going to characterize the period of time between his death and resurrection, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the end of history. But in the midst of that, because Jesus has spelled out these signs for us, Christians are not to give up or despair or allow themselves to be taken in by these deceivers that Jesus says will arise because he who stands firm, he who perseveres to the end, will in fact be saved. So 
believers are exhorted to persevere to the end. That's how we know we're believers, that the elect do indeed persevere in faith in Christ to the end of their lives. And we will be saved from judgment that will come upon all those who hate Christ, who hate his gospel, and who persecute his disciples. Now, in verse 14, Jesus gives us a sign, a very clear sign of the end of the age. Uh, the end of this period of time, and that is that the gospel must be preached, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the ends of the earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, as I mentioned, the tension in all of the discourse is between the already and the not yet, or this age and the age to come. And that tension is difficult for people to deal with, so they cut it. That pushes people in the direction of preterism to say this passage is, is all fulfilled, perhaps with the exception of the second coming of Christ. Or the futurists, i.e. dispensationalists, who push this passage off into the future. This passage basically is very clear that before the end of the age, the gospel is preached to all the earth. It doesn't say the gospel is accepted by all the nations. It says the gospel is preached to all the nations. So, preterists will try and say that this was already fulfilled in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. The gospel is in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. The end of the earth usually is considered the city of Rome because the Roman Empire covered the known earth. And I think there is something to that. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. The dispensationalists will say, well, the gospel can't have been preached to the ends of the earth yet because Christ hasn't come back. I don't think Jesus is saying that when the gospel gets to the end of the earth, boom, he's coming back. I think he says that has to happen before he comes back. So how long that is, we don't necessarily know. Uh, I do think there's a good case to be made that when the last elect believer comes to faith, that that's probably tied to the end of history. I would, I would think that would, it's a deduction. I don't have any passages that explicitly say that. But I think in verse 14, Jesus is basically extending this sign past the apostolic age, where the gospel had already reached the Roman Empire, much of the Roman Empire by AD 70. But the same gospel of the kingdom, this gospel that Jesus has been preaching in the temple with the disciples present, it has to be preached to all the nations, to the ends of the earth, before Christ returns at the end of the age. So I think this establishes the missionary enterprise. This is what the church is to be doing in this interadvental period, not to be speculating about the end, not sitting on our hands, but taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus is establishing the missionary enterprise of the church. His church is to be, during this interadvental period, a missionary church. Its job is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so when people, you know, I mentioned this when we discuss signs of the end, people will say, now do you believe in, in, that Christ can come back at any moment? Well, I think Christ can come back very soon, given the complex of events. I think we need to see an Antichrist, the conversion of Israel, but all those things can come about relatively quickly. I think that sign may very well be, have been fulfilled. The gospel may have already been preached to the ends of the earth. Um, we don't know that. It's, it's very likely. That's not justification for saying that we shouldn't be about the business of making sure that it's preached to the ends of the earth, but I think that is one sign we can say is, is either fulfilled or certainly close to it. Um, Charles Cranfield, in his commentary on Mark, offers a, a very good piece of advice here, and I think it's worth 
considering. He says the meaning of this verse is that it is part of God's eschatological purpose that before the end, all nations shall have an opportunity to accept the gospel. I don't like the language of opportunity to accept the gospel, but I do appreciate the point that the gospel has to be preached to all the nations. And the interval, says Cranfield, is the time of God's patience, during which all men are summoned to repentance and faith. The gospel has for its content the church's mission to the world. This does not mean the world will necessarily get steadily more Christian, or that the end will not come until all are converted. It is a promise that the gospel will be preached, not that it will be believed. And the disciples' witness is yet another characteristic of the last time. So, I think the church's witness on the earth during this difficult period of all this tumult is a sign of God's faithfulness. And the church is to be about its mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And remember, when the gospel goes to a a new area, it certainly happens in the pages of the New Testament, there's an increased satanic resistance to the gospel. So... Now, I think this is kind of explains some of the things we send the mission field, some of the difficulty in uh, when the gospel goes first to an, a new area. And um, I'm going to belabor that point, but I, I do think that explains some of the things we see with um, signs and wonders and that kind of thing, especially in the apostolic age. Now, I think this sign then tied to the ongoing mission of the church and a sign that must be complete before the end of the age, um, is really connected to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Remember, Matthew's Gospel ends with Jesus saying to the disciples, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and, and teaching them. So, there are not only going to be wars and rumors of wars, famine, persecution, false Christ, so-called birth pains of the end, In the midst of all of that, the church is to be about the mission of preaching the gospel. And this is a, can get into a two kingdom debate. This is not the time or the place for it, but I think this is kind of fits with what we expect with the Christian mission and the mission of the church being a spiritual mission, preaching sacraments and discipline. Um, And I don't see any evidence here in the, the birth pains and the tumult that the world steadily gets more Christian in the sense that cultures steadily transform. What I do see is a presence of the church on the earth, no matter how bad it gets, and that Christians are able to uh, take the gospel to the ends of the earth because the gospel is powerful, and Jesus himself said the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So, what do we make of the signs of the end as well as the, continuing, uh, the coming destruction of the temple? Well, Jesus answers the disciples' last question first by enumerating a series of signs that characterize the entire period of time between his death and resurrection and the time of the end. Now, as I mentioned, the tension to push everything back into the future is found among preterists who try and limit this period of signs to the uh, what they call the end of the Jewish era, AD 30 to 70, and I think that runs into the problem of the gospel being having to be preached to the ends of the earth. I don't think the, last, the language of Acts 1.8 uh, exhausts that, although that is a matter for some ongoing debate. Um, they're going to be, in my opinion, false Christs. They're going to be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecution, uh, people opposing the gospel, all the way until Christ comes back. They're going to be places where this is in, especially intense, 
And there'll be other places on the earth at the same time where there'll be relative prosperity and peace for the church. And it can flip. You think of Europe. Um, Northern Europe is pagan during the apostolic era. All the Goths and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the Vandals. It gets pretty wild. Europe's converted to Christ. Then you have Charles the Great and Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire. And then it becomes the seat of you know, Rome's influence and the Gospel is eclipsed by layers of tradition. There's a Reformation. Northern Europe becomes Christian again. And after the Enlightenment and in the modern age, you know, it's, it's becoming increasingly secularized and pagan. And who knows, it may end up being you know, Islamic before another uh, hundred years goes by or so. So, you can see in, in one just geographic region, and there you go from, from paganism to Christianity, to Christendom, to the Protestant Reformation, to the Enlightenment, to secularism, and who knows what? Europe may have to be re-evangelized all over again. So, that's what I'm getting at when I'm, I see you have to kind of view this somewhat broadly, and, and I don't think... Um, Predator dispensationalists are, are particularly good at doing either. Um, to those without faith, all of this looks according to Second Peter chapter three, verse three. Jesus, we keep hearing about these signs, and your your church keeps telling us, you know, now is the time. And so scoffers will come and they'll say, "Where is this coming that you promised?" And we keep giving them ammunition by making all kinds of crazy predictions. Now. As Jesus is going to command us at the end of Matthew, the gospel has to be preached to all the nations. And that is one of the signs of Christ's coming, as we said. Jesus hasn't called us to speculate. He's called us to persevere to the end in the midst of this ongoing calamity of the nations and the groaning of the earth. And our mission then is to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. But the big matzo ball hanging out here in the Olivet Discourse, the big issue comes next. What about the destruction of the temple? And we saw last time in 1 Kings chapter 9, God had warned Israel, if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and you serve other gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel from the land. I will reject this temple that I've consecrated for my name. That temple, the glory of God departs. That temple is now Ichabod. The disciples thought that had happened with the Babylonian exile, and they were right. Israel comes back to the land. The second temple is rebuilt. It's far more glorious than Solomon's temple. Herod has been about the, the Herodian dynasty, is about this public works project. They've got all this Roman money. Uh, they're flush with, with cash, and they're basically renovating the entire city. And the temple was the beneficiary of that. It is a magnificent building. And now here's Jesus on the Mount of Olives with the twelve, looking across, and he's saying, within a generation, this is all going to be gone. We're right back to First Kings all over again. Uh, God's people are going to reject their Messiah, who, by the way, is the true temple. The true temple sitting with the disciples on the Mount of Olives. It's not on, on Mount Moriah. It's not on Mount Zion. It, he's sitting in their midst. That magnificent building is going to be destroyed, says Jesus. Not one stone left standing on another. Now, what we have to realize is by the time of the coming of Christ, the temple has become a hindrance to faith. 
uh, the temples actually become a stumbling block. It's not as though the temple is just going to pass out of use and become obsolete. The temple is actually a stumbling block to faith. The people of Israel really imagine that God can't do without the temple. And so, since they're the guardians of that temple, they pretty much can do what they want. As long as they're zealous for the rights that go on in the temple, there's kind of the sense that we're indispensable to the purposes of God. He can't get along without us. And yet, the temple has reached its end in redemptive history. To a Jew, to one of the disciples, the destruction of that temple is like the worst calamity imaginable. It would be a sure sign to any Jew of God's judgment upon Israel. And and by the way, this is one of the reasons why I think the Gospels, uh, by and large, are written before A.D. 70, why I think all the books of the New Testament have earlier dating, because there's never a Christian polemic against Jews in the New Testament. See, look what God did to your temple. Uh, It would seem to me that would be your best argument, your best empirical argument that Christianity has supplanted Judaism. If you could say to those, those militant Jews holding on to the Torah and the traditions, well, look at your temple. Uh, you don't find that anywhere in the New Testament, not even in the, in the book of Revelation, although I do think the Gospel of John, perhaps, and the book of Revelation are, are after AD 70. In any case, this is a horrible calamity. It's got to be a sign of the end of the age. And that's the misconception Jesus corrects. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. The temple's place in redemptive history is gone. But that isn't yet the end of the age. That's, I think, one of the reasons uh, preterists will have to argue that AD 70 is a true coming of Christ because they have to show that that is a, an end of the Jewish era that ends with Christ coming back in judgment on Jerusalem. Um, I think the better way to see this is to argue that this is a huge milestone in redemptive history, but doesn't, isn't considered a parousia or coming of Christ. Now, in verse 15, Jesus answers the disciples' questions, finally, when will this happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? And so Jesus begins to speak of this period of great tribulation, unsurpassed throughout the history of Israel. Now, our dispensational friends argue that this passage has to be read in light of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which, as we saw a couple weeks ago, is assigned to that future seven-year tribulation period. If true, when Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives, looking across at the temple, he's with his disciples, he's really speaking of an event that can't happen until after 1948, an event that can't even happen yet because the temple's not been rebuilt. And so, let me read... uh, from John Walbert's commentary in Matthew, which I think is, is really fascinating. Walbert says, and I'm quoting, Christ was not talking here about fulfillment in the first century, but prophecy to be related to his actual second coming to the earth in the future. Now, think about that for a minute. If, if Walbert is correct, Jesus has, in a sense, trick the disciples into thinking he's answering their question when he's really speaking to those living at the end of the age. And I think that's really a problem for our dispensational friends. Uh, Not only does it ignore the reality of of what is going on in Jerusalem, what Jesus is, is describing to the disciples, it in a sense 
has Jesus answering the question in such a way the disciples are sitting there thinking he's answering the question to them when he's not? I think that's a real problem. I also think there are very good reasons to think that Jesus is speaking about the events of AD 70. Uh, Recall that the disciples' questions are prompted by Jesus' comments to them that Israel is about to come under desolation and be cut off. Now, they know what that means. They have a history of Israel being taken into captivity in Babylon. They know this language. They know what Jesus is talking about when he says temples destroyed. They've got this in their historical uh, registry here. This is not a foreign thing to them. So when Jesus says that that's going to happen, they're immediately going to, oh, well, this has to be the, the close of the age and this has to be it. And that's a very natural assumption. Now, that this is Jesus' answer to the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple is very clear when we look at the parallel passage in Luke 21.20. Luke says there, when Jesus answers their question, he adds this. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know that its destruction is near. So, when you look at the Olivet Discourse as a whole, and that's, I, I will confess, that's not always easy to, to do, Jesus in Luke's Gospel adds to that there's going to be a Roman siege of the city first before this can happen. This is clearly the events of AD 70. The Roman military action that led to the destruction of the city and the temple are linked by Jesus to the events of 70. And add to that the fact that Jesus switches subjects from the preaching of the gospel to all nations to a frightening prophecy that will render the temple desolate. He's got to be talking about the events of AD 70. D.A. Carson puts it very well when he writes, the details of what follows are too limited geographically and culturally to extend this beyond AD 70. Uh, Our dispensational friends are just wrong on this point. It's clear that Jesus is describing what lies ahead for Jerusalem within a generation, for Israel, desolation, for Jerusalem, its destruction, and for the temple, it's absolute and total destruction. And what Jesus has to say to the disciples is not good news. Uh, this, this is an oracle of woe. This is an enunciation of impending disaster. Now, in verse 15, Jesus evokes a theme drawn directly from Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel 12, verse 11, which speak of an idolatrous image that will be set up in the altar of the temple at the time of the destruction of the city. This abominable image renders the temple desolate. Now, the abomination that makes desolate is an intriguing metaphor. It's an an interesting image, and and people have had a blast speculating about what this is, but I think it's pretty clear that the abomination of desolation is a Greek transposition of the Hebrew phrase and conveys the idea of something being detestable to God. It's often used in reference to pagan gods and the articles used in connection with pagan worship. Cranfield uh, offers this explanation. He says, and I'm quoting, the significance of the Hebrew participle is that the abominable thing causes the temple to be deserted, the pious avoiding the temple on its account. Daniel 12.11 appears to be fulfilled in part when Antiochus Epiphanes, that is the god Antiochus revealed himself, Uh, when he set up a pagan altar in the temple in 168 B.C. during the Maccabean Wars. Uh, 
Quoting again, Jesus' use of the phrase implies that for him, the meaning of the prophecy was not exhausted by the events of Maccabean times. It still had a future reference. The temple of God must yet suffer a fearful profanation by which its whole glory will perish. So here are the poor disciples. They come to Jerusalem. They think this is going to be the end. Jesus is going to be the king. All that they had expected was going to be fulfilled, and now Jesus says the whole thing is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed to the point that not one stone's left standing on another. And the reason why is that abomination of Santicus Epiphany slaughtering a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies or whatever it was that he had done to profane the temple, that that will come back again, only this time worse. And so says Jesus, when you see something standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, then you know that this is about to come to pass. Um, Daniel 9, verse 70, uh, is in view. It's fulfilled. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in 163 is certainly uh, in mind here. Um, he put a pagan statue in the temple. Every Jew knew that. They knew that an abomination meant that the temple would be unclean. And that's the image now that Jesus picks up and says that that will happen to the temple again. Only this time it will make what happened with Antiochus just pale by comparison. When Jesus evokes images from Daniel 9, 11, and 12, he really now is saying, I'm interpreting Daniel's vision for you. I'm telling you what Daniel was saying. And I think... uh, This, again, is why methodologically we can't do what our dispensational friends do. They take Daniel 9 and tell us from Daniel 9 what Matthew has to say and what Jesus has to mean. And I think we have to do this exactly the opposite direction. Jesus is the one prefigured and foretold by Daniel, and now Jesus explains the meaning of Daniel's prophecy to us. If you don't do that, you end up doing the kinds of things that John Walbert's doing here, that no, 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 no. This is off in the future because Daniel says so. Well, I don't think it works that way and shouldn't work that way. So, when Jesus says, let the reader understand, he's saying that he's going to explain the mysteries that Daniel struggled to explain, but at that point in redemptive history really couldn't comprehend. This is also the mean, uh, this also means that the destruction of the temple by Antiochus is really a foreshadowing of another desolation yet to come that fulfills what Daniel had predicted, the destruction of the temple that would be uh, far more horrific than anything that had happened before. And you've got to remember, this is every pious Jew's greatest fear. This, if you're a Jew, you're living in a Roman occupation, this is the thing you fear more than anything else. We're going to be hauled up into captivity again. We've got Gentiles lording their authority over us. We've got Roman soldiers billeted in the Antonia Fortress just a couple blocks away from the temple wall. And now Jesus is telling us we're going to be hauled off into captivity. We're going to suffer and die again in a land not our own. Yeah. Your house has been left to you desolate. So Jesus then not only warns of a desecration of the temple, he warns of a great calamity to come upon the entire nation. A calamity that comes to pass when the temple is desecrated. So in verse 16, Jesus says, when you see that happen, then, that is at that time, when you see the abomination of the temple, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The moment that the temple is profaned, it is time to 
go. Now, we know that the apostolic church uh, remember these words of our Lord and when it became clear that Rome was going to use great military force to put down the Jewish rebellion going on in Jerusalem and local environs in 66 and 67, Christians remaining in Jerusalem relocated to the Transjordan and they hid basically in the same place, Pella, that the Jews hid during the Maccabean Wars. They knew Jesus' words and they, they escaped, many of them, from the city. Now, the crisis is going to come to pass so quickly and the consequences are going to be so great that Jesus warns the disciples in very graphic terms, look, don't let anybody in the roof of their house go down to get anything out of the house. Houses in that era were built so that uh, during the, the uh, hot part of the day you sit off the roof because that was the hottest part, but in the evening you, know, you didn't have air conditioning or sliding windows. Your house had thick uh, adobe-like walls to keep the heat out. So in the evening, you'd sit up on the top of your house and catch the breeze. So Jesus is saying, look, when that happens, flee. Don't even go back down into your house to, to take anything out. Head for the hills. Uh, go. Uh, don't even go back down into your house. Um, don't go to get your cloak and pray that this won't happen if your wife's pregnant or this won't happen on the Sabbath when you know, all the gas stations are closed. Um, when everything is shut down and there's, there's no place to get uh, food. Uh, uh, or, he says, that this won't happen in winter when things are muddy and the roads are difficult to travel. So, he's basically uh, warning the disciples, this is going to be really awful when it happens. Now, you may, if you're thinking, we've heard something like this before with the story of Lot, um, Probably a lot to that. When Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, remember uh, the warning given to Lot's wife. Don't look back. Jesus is, is in some way speaking very much uh, like that. Um, it's going to be so difficult that, you know, if you have a pregnant wife or small kids, the weather's bad, this is going to be really, really a terrible thing. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but, you know, one of the issues that I raise in my book, and it's an issue that, you know, I, I'm can be talked out of it, but I kind of sense that in some ways the destruction that Jesus is predicting here has a double fulfillment. That in many ways the abomination that makes desolation, the destruction of the, of the temple, or what happens to the city of Jerusalem almost prefigures the apostasy at the time of the end when Jesus then, uh, or when Paul rather, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of this appearance of the man of sin who profanes the temple of God. Well, for Paul, every time he uses the word temple, it's in reference to the church, unless Second Thessalonians chapter 2 be the exception. So Paul here uses similar images from Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 when he speaks of this appearance of the man of sin in the temple of God, claiming to be God at the time of the end. And I take that to be a reference to the church, and I take that to be a reference to you know, state-sponsored heresy, uh, which is the culmination of that Antichrist imagery. And I can steer you to my book for those arguments. But the uh, events of AD 70, I think, in many ways, foreshadow uh, a great eschatological film at the time of the end when things get very, very bad immediately before the days of, of Christ's return. And we will be saying, if the Lord doesn't come back, there's no hope for us. I think that's the sense of God's people on the earth at the, at the uh, period of right before the Lord returns, where that is our only hope. 
that if Christ come back, um, then there, there is no hope for us. Now, one of the most difficult parts of the Olivet Discourse is when Jesus then says, For there will be great distress, literally great tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. People really have a difficult time with that phrase because Jesus is plainly speaking of the tribulation to come. He says it's so great, nothing like it will ever happen before or after. And, of course, that gives the dispensationalist ammunition to say that's got to be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in the future because the greatest thing in the history of the world hasn't already come to pass. I mean, there's the Holocaust, there's the Crusades, there's the Muslim occupation of Jerusalem, there's you know all of this going on, the Spanish Inquisition. So, this wasn't the worst thing that ever happened uh, in the history of the world. But I think that ignores the fact that the prophetic warning given by Jesus is very clearly referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Precisely because of the gravity of the tribulation yet to come, Jesus forcefully warns his people, when you see these things happening, flee. When you see that abomination in the temple where it doesn't belong, get out of Dodge. That's talking about events that occur in the lifetimes of the disciples. The reason people are to flee the city is that the horrors that come upon Jerusalem in AD 70 are in fact the worst that Jerusalem has ever, or I think if we take Jesus literally, will ever experience. It was greater than the destruction that occurred in 583 B.C. when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. It was greater than the desolation in 163 at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes. This is going to be national Israel's darkest hour. This is going to be that horrible time when desolation will fall on the temple and God's people, His covenant people. They will come under all the covenant curses and they will be dispersed to the ends of the earth. It is a horrible calamity in redemptive history. There's nothing in redemptive history before or after that could happen that's possibly as bad as that. If you've ever read Josephus' description of the Roman siege of Jerusalem, I really encourage you to do so. There's a great famine. There's even infant cannibalism. Uh, you can't help but be just moved by the unspeakable horror that the people endured while the Roman army crushed the revolt and then uh, accidentally burned the temple uh, to the ground. You know, Titus' the soldiers were told not to do so, but um, the temple furnishings caught fire. The temple's like a giant chimney. It heated up very quickly. All the gold temple... Um, Instruments and implements melt. The temple had a very sophisticated drainage structure. The gold melts, goes down in those little tracks. And so to get the gold, the Roman soldiers destroyed the temple to such a degree that not one stone was left standing on another. It's amazing that Jesus has, has predicted that so, uh, so accurately. Now Jesus goes on to speak not a final judgment, that occurs that he's coming, but God's grace in restraining the evil forces that fall on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It says Jesus in verse 22, If those days aren't cut short, nobody's going to survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And so just as God had restrained his judgment on Sodom because of the presence of the righteous or believers there, so too, even as Israel becomes desolate and even as the temple is destroyed, God shortens the time of judgment for the sake of his elect, that is, for those Christians living in Jerusalem or around the city 
whom God is going to deliver, even in the midst of judgment that comes upon Israel. Um, there are some Jews who remain in the land afterwards, and there are many, many Christians who remain in the Jerusalem area afterwards. And I see, think we see um, Israel cut off, the Jews dispersed, and God's people are persevering even under the, the worst of circumstances. So, question then whether this has double fulfillment or not, I leave that open to you. It, it doesn't affect the all-millennial interpretation one way or the other, but it is something that uh, does explain uh, some of the tensions in the passage. And like I said, it's not a hill I'm going to die on, but I do think it makes a fair bit of sense. Now, in verse 23, Jesus returns to a theme that he addressed way back in verse 4. The inevitable appearance of false Christs and deceivers who are going to plague God's people until the end of the age and the final judgment. So, by returning to this theme in connection with the judgment that's going to come upon Israel, Jesus, in effect, is making the point that the destruction of the temple and the city is not the parousia. It's not the end of the age, for the presence of false Christ is going to be a threat to Christ's church even after the temple is destroyed. Says Jesus, at that time, that is after the aftermath and the confusion that's generated by the great tribulation that comes on Israel, if anybody says to you, look, here's a Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. So judgment upon Israel in AD 70 then becomes a breeding ground for messianic pretenders. And Christians are warned, don't be taken in by these guys. Jesus warns the disciples one more time of the great danger that this period is going to create because false Christs, false messiahs are going to pop up out of no place. They're going to appear to have God's blessing and they're going to attempt to deceive God's people and see if anybody says to you, there he is out in the desert, don't go out. If anybody says he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. There are going to be people who would lead God's people astray except God perseveres, God preserves his elect. So, Jesus warns us about those who teach that Christ's coming is out in the desert or in inner rooms, that it's not universal. And I think that kind of language is a pretty strong argument against preterism that's, that argues that Jesus comes locally in judgment in the clouds above Israel because here he's saying, look, when people say he's coming but nobody saw it, don't believe it. When he's, he comes out in the desert, don't believe it. Very next passage, verse 27, For as lightning comes from east to west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The idea is everybody's going to see it. Don't go into the inner rooms. Don't go out in the desert. When Christ comes back, it'll be like lightning. Everybody's going to see it. It's universal. It's cosmic. And I think that also challenges the idea of our dispensational friends who argue that Jesus comes back, but he doesn't bodily touch the earth until the second coming. That there's a rapture in which Christ comes in the heavens, takes off believers, and then comes back bodily later. No, there is no secret rapture. Jesus is saying here that when the Lord returns, there's cosmic indication of this. Just like lightning and everybody sees it, uh, so too will Christ's coming be at the end of the age. Um, this is not going to be a secret event. People aren't going to miss it. Uh, he hasn't already come. When somebody says he's, he's come out in this inner room over here, in, the, in this room here, or he's come in the desert over there, don't believe it. You'll know it when he comes because it'll be visible to all. So I think that kind of language warns us about this notion that Jesus appears in the clouds and there's some cosmic signs, but only over Jerusalem. 
I think that misses the, the, the thrust of what Jesus says here. Lightning uh, flashing from one to the other is a cosmic sign. It's unmistakable. And in fact, in Luke 17, verse 37, we learn that the disciples asked Jesus, when will this happen? Obviously beginning to realize that our Lord's coming can't be limited to the destruction on Jerusalem. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus adds, coming takes place wherever there's a carcass where the vultures gather. Um, that's an image taken from Habakkuk and Job. Uh, birds eating on the dead as a sign of judgment. So, by its very nature, then, the coming of Jesus at the end of the age is not going to be something that people are going to miss. Now, we have just a few minutes to address the latter part of the Olivet Discourse. And I hate to go through the things so quickly, but uh, we are pressed for time. Verses 29 through 44 are the last section um, of the Discourse. Jesus now speaks directly to the disciples' question about his coming at the end of the age. So, here he's answering the question about the timing and nature of his coming. Uh, He's been talking about the signs. Now he's going to talk about his second coming. So, the critical question is, how is verse 29 related to what goes before, where Jesus says, immediately after the distress of those days... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Jesus is describing cosmic signs. These are not local signs. These are cosmic signs. That means they shake the foundation of the universe. Um, parallel passages, for example, Second Peter chapter 3, the elements burn up with a roar. I mean, we're talking about cosmic signs here, not just local signs uh, in and around the city of Jerusalem. Um, I think we're talking here about the second advent, not a localized judgment uh, as our preterist friends will argue. For one thing, Matthew's use of the word atheos um, immediately seems to indicate that this is connected to the preceding, uh, to the following the second advent, not the preceding which is the fall of Jerusalem. And I'll refer you to the uh, commentators for the technical arguments. That gives the passage this sense. That immediately after the days of sustained persecution, all those signs that characterize the interadvental period, immediately after that, we have the second advent. Now, I mentioned the first time that Jesus speaks in prophetic idiom, and that's exactly what that would be. Some people will say, well, there you go. Your amillennial wax nose making the passages say what you want to say. I think there's some pretty good evidence that this is the case. Uh, in those days is a very common Old Testament expression. It's used throughout the prophets. And, of course, Jesus identifies himself as a prophet. Um, and the argument here I, I laid out in, in some detail in my book. Uh, following that distress in those days appears to be a restatement of all those judgments that have gone before. After the distress, after all of this stuff has gone, then Christ returns in all his glory. Um, This would fit with Isaiah 13. It speaks of the day of the Lord as characterized by cosmic signs and final judgment. See if you can kind of see the parallels here between Isaiah 13 and Jesus' words here. Isaiah says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of the heaven and their constellation will not show their light. The rising sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. 
I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. So here in Isaiah, you not only have cosmic signs, you also have judgment. So the cosmic signs seem to be linked to the day of judgment. So the picture here is a day of judgment yet to come, a day in which the heavens themselves convulse. Because this is the end. This is the final day of judgment. And that just isn't explained by the events of AD 70. Even though, as I've argued, I think much of this passage up to verse 28 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So I'm always amused when my dispensational friends call me a preterist because of my reading of Matthew 24. And my preterist friends call me a futurist because I think we're talking about the second coming and not events localized to Jerusalem. But if we made everybody happy, then that wouldn't be so good either. Now, why then the tension as we wrap up here between the already and the not yet? Why does Jesus mix signs that are imminent with signs that are yet far off? Well, I think this is done so that those who listen to Jesus in subsequent generations, that's us, have to live in light of the promise of his coming. When all around us we see all these signs going on, wars, rumors of wars, false Christs, uh, famines, earthquakes, when all of this stuff is going on all around us, we live in light of God's promise. We have to. His promise is that after all this tribulation has run its course, then Christ will return. And it won't be in some inner room someplace. It won't be on the desert someplace. It'll be such that the entire cosmos convulses with the second coming of Christ. Because this is the day of final judgment. And as we've argued earlier, the day of judgment is the day of resurrection and the day of cosmic renewal. All these things occur at the same time. And I think it's really clear that that's what Jesus is describing. The point is, we have to live every day and every moment in light of the promise of His coming because of signs all around us, the tumult, the chaos, all of that all around us tells us that Jesus is in fact coming back. And this is the challenge of, of being a Christian and living in faith. Um, we know that the world is not as it ought to be. And instead of despairing, we say those signs and those uh, horrible things that go on remind us that Jesus is indeed coming back. One last issue I want to address in the, in the couple minutes we have remaining. Jesus says, this generation shall not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Um, our dispensational friends would argue that in 1948, Israel became a nation again. And when he speaks of the fig tree budding, he's referring to Israel back in the land and so the generation being referred to begins in 1948. Well, in my extensive library from my uh, dispensational days, I have a number of dispensational books that argue that a generation was 25 years, and then 30 years, then 33 years, then 40 years. Why? Because... 1948 was like 62 years ago. So, if this generation won't pass away until Christ comes back because Israel's back in the land, you can see how huge a problem this is for our dispensational friends. Jesus is speaking to whom? His disciples. And he's telling them, your generation is not going to pass away until those questions you ask me 
all that's going to be fulfilled except the second advent of Christ. So all of the things that he told them to expect have occurred. Even the signs of his coming are present in their lifetime. All that remains is the Lord's second advent. And that, by the way, fits with prophetic idiom. And if you don't argue that, you end up having to say that the fig tree and the Christian fig tree has nothing to do with God's judgment on Israel. It has to do with Israel becoming a nation in 1948. And we'll address that next time because in our next lecture we're going to move on from all that discourse to cover Romans 9 through 11. And I think that is a very, very important passage in eschatology because there uh, Paul does much like Jesus does. He speaks in very explicit terms of the course of the future and he specifically addresses the nation of Israel and Israel's interaction with the Gentiles. And there are very strong parallels between Romans 9 to 11 and the Olivet Discourse. So uh, we'll take that up uh, next time. And then our following two lectures, the last two in the series, we're going to cover Revelation chapter 20 and take a look at the uh, only passage in the Bible where the thousand years are mentioned. And we should uh, wrap up the series three more lectures.